0: Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Victor Lukerson, who is the author of the book Built from the Fire: The Epic Story of Tulsa's Greenwood District, America's Black Wall Street, published by Random House. Victor Lukerson, welcome to the
1: podcast. Thanks for having me, Reagan. So excited to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book, this um, epic story that you wrote about uh, Tulsa's Greenwood neighborhood. And you, the book really is epic in that it traverses the late 1800s to today to chronicle the life of this neighborhood in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I wondered if you could say a little bit about yourself to introduce yourself to the listeners and talk about how you came to write this book.
1: Yeah, so I am uh, an author, a writer. I always wanted to be a writer since I was five years old. It's really been my life's dream. And I kind of realized when I was in college um, at the University of Alabama that uh, journalism was kind of the best way to be a writer. You know, I got to sort of pursue my creative passions, but also tell real people's stories, and that really appealed to me. And so um, I was from Alabama, went to the University of Alabama, um, spent a few years as a business reporter, but really I was really most interested in writing about black people and about our history and so in 2018 actually i was working for a website called the ringer and i took a reporting trip to greenwood on the 97th anniversary of the race massacre and it was a very pivotal moment in my life looking back on it now because you know i was there to um observe the anniversary and kind of see how tulsa was commemorating it and acknowledging what had happened there but I also, struck that night, I went there because there was a vigil going on for race massacre victims, folks who had been murdered in uh, 1921. There were maybe about 30 folks at this vigil in Greenwood, but there were hundreds of people actually in the neighborhood that were streaming into a baseball stadium that was built in 2010, uh, to the opposition of a lot of uh, black residents. So that was just a very striking entry point to this to this world, you know, to see that this history was still alive for a small subset of people but being ignored by um, the larger population of Tulsa. And so when I went there for that first time in 2018 and just sort of saw that dichotomy, it really made me motivated to want to tell a deeper story about Tulsa and about Greenwood and about the people who've been there for generations. And so it really kind of came from that initial story that I decided to dive deeper. Uh, I actually ended up moving to Tulsa in 2019. You know, I packed up my life uh, in Atlanta um quit my job I made a black country playlist to get to get in the mood for being in the Wild west and I you know drove west and I've been living in Tulsa ever since.
0: Wow, that is an amazing story and I, I liked how you said that you want to tell the stories and histories of, of black people because that's exactly what you did um, in the in the book and um, and that's really that shows a lot of commitment as well to move to the location and plant yourself there to tell that story. Um, and so the book is separated into three parts. Um, and in the beginning, you chronicle the Greenwood neighborhood up until the race massacre in 1921. And I thought one of the themes of the book, um, particularly in that beginning part was ambition and particularly like black ambition or the ambitions of African-Americans. And it's apparent that, you know, people are building businesses, families are buying homes. Um, you know, one business you talk about, for example, is the Dreamland Theater um, that was started by Lula Williams. And I wondered if you could talk about Greenwood that you chronicle that, uh, that neighborhood before the massacre.
1: Sure. So Greenwood really was um, perceived almost as a black utopia by people who were in the Jim Crow South. You know, Oklahoma is being called the Eden of the West. And these brochures and newspaper articles that are being read by folks who were under the heel of white supremacy in places like Mississippi alabama arkansas and so there were literally thousands of people streaming from um, the deep south over to oklahoma i write in the book that they came um, by train on wagon even on foot some people literally walked to oklahoma because they thought it was going to be a better place uh, for their people and so it really was important for me you know we have a lot of today black wall Street mythology about the wealth of the community and the success of it and it's really become this emblem of black excellence for so many um, African-Americans. And it's important for me to really kind of dig into the actual dynamics of the community. And so, you know, one person that was really fun to highlight was Lula Williams. You know, I I love the idea of this woman really advocating for herself in Greenwood. Um, You know, she she and her husband, John, purchased this property to build the Dreamland Theater, which is probably one of the most famous uh, Greenwood businesses historically in 1914. And I think often in the sort of, Folk narratives about Greenwood, there's sort of this perception that John Williams kind of ran everything. There's actually a very famous photo of John and Lula in a car, a Norwalk car, which is kind of like a fancy version of a Model T. It's like the Rolls Royce of the 1910s. So there's a photo of them in this car, and uh, Lula's riding in the passenger seat of the car, and it kind of reinforces a lot of stereotypes, I think, about uh, relationships and power structures. But I was sort of surprised to find in my research, actually, that Lula was the one who operated the Dreamland and even went so far as to file an affidavit in the courthouse claiming that she owned herself the projector, the popcorn machine, all the seats, everything in that theater, and that John owned none of it. And so I brought that out in the book to sort of show her autonomy. Um, And so she was one of the really fascinating folks for me to follow. I loved following um, Mabel Little, who was a hairdresser in Greenwood. You know, she had come there from this all-black town of Boley in oklahoma and mabel's kind of an interesting figure because she's sort of she's very religious and kind of a little bit judgmental of uh people who are involved in some of the underworld of greenwood and so but she ends up sort of understanding that those folks have their own ambitions too right and that they're also sort of part of this community and so it was really kind of interesting and for me at least kind of captivating to learn about these people and kind of dive into what their lives were like and i also should definitely mention um the goodwin family so the book itself follows several different families and people, but one family in particular, the Goodwins, who came from Mississippi in 1914, who had heard about Oklahoma being the Eden of the West and tried to gather for a better life. And so J.H. Goodwin, um, the family patriarch, um, owned a funeral home and a grocery store on uh, Greenwood Avenue, some of the sort of most prototypical, essential black businesses of that era. You know what I mean? And so I love the idea of people in this neighborhood on that block, sort of finding all of these different ways um, to build success and also building it together. You know, I talk in the book about how the black dollar circulated so much in that neighborhood and also about how land ownership was extremely important. You know, a lot of these folks in Greenwood, Lula, for example, J.H. and his wife, Carly, as well, they owned their businesses. They owned the property where those businesses were built and that gave them the autonomy to do them what they pleased. You know, in the Dreamlands case, Obviously, it was a movie theater, so it's for entertainment, vaudeville shows, that kind of thing. But there would also be protests there against Jim Crow, you know, because Lula owned that space. She could do with it what she pleased. And that's something that Greenwood has lost in a lot of ways because, you know, you have this baseball stadium here. There's a lot of high-rises in Greenwood now. So we've kind of lost that autonomy that we once had. I think the book, um, as it progresses, sort of shows how that ownership and autonomy was dismantled piece by piece.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. And it was definitely um, dismantled, um, definitely as you as you chronicle it through the book. But reading about those early, you know, stories and and, and 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 you know, and I think the the stories continue as well of people, you know, finding success and whatnot. Um, but reading those early stories was really kind of like a beacon. I think as as I was reading the the, the book, I felt this, you know this excitement, this energy, um, this pride in the neighborhood. Um, and then, you know, and seeing these, these, massive businesses that people, you know, developed, like you said, the dreamland theater and there was that hotel as well. Um, it was really incredible. Um, and so the book, you know, it expands beyond the race massacre in 1921 and it, and it definitely takes this panoramic view of the neighborhood across time. Um, however, the race massacre is this pivotal event that reverberates throughout the book. And so I wondered if you could describe what happened um, during the race massacre in Greenwood,
1: Sure. So, I mean, technically, this story starts in on May 30th, 1921. But to me, it starts in 1907 when Oklahoma became a state. So, you know, as I just said, Oklahoma was really being perceived as this potential black utopia um, because it hadn't really had its rules written yet um, in the early 1900s. However, in 1907, when Oklahoma becomes a state, the very first law passed by the legislature segregated uh, train cars throughout the state. And this is to the protest of um, a lot of black leaders in the community. Um, some black folks went all the way, actually, to Teddy Roosevelt trying to oppose the idea of importing Jim Crow to Oklahoma, and he he ignored their demands. And so Oklahoma sort of imports Jim Crow, and it's sort of just uh, imprinting racism right there with the state seal, almost in a lot of ways, you know. And so sort of from that, we we sort of watch this state. Um, become more and more racist, more and more segregated over time. And so that's sort of being imbued in the white community. However, as we just discussed, Greenwood was very ambitious, very independent, very autonomous. And so the people there weren't really going to countenance this um, encroachment of Jim Crow. And so, you know, another prominent Greenwood figure in the early years was this man named A.J. Smitherman. He was the editor of the black newspaper, the Tulsa Star. And every single week, the Tulsa Star would have a different like slogan on the front page, and one of them that really stuck out to me was uh, "You push me, I'll push you." So there really wasn't really a space in Greenwood for um, submitting to white supremacy. This wasn't going to happen. So all that's going to happen on both sides of town, and the in really the years leading up to nineteen twenty one, but on May thirtieth, nineteen twenty one. Um, a black shoeshine boy named Dick Rowan, who worked in downtown Tulsa, stepped onto an elevator with a white attendant named Sarah Page. Um, the elevator doors closed. Um, the elevator lurched and Dick Rowan stepped on her foot or maybe grabbed her arm. We don't exactly know what happened. But when the elevator reopened, um, a man in the building observed what happened. Sarah Page screamed. Dick Rowan ran away. And ultimately, he was uh, accused of a rape, a rape attempt. Um He was arrested put in the county courthouse, downtown Tulsa. And pivotally, uh, the Tulsa Tribune, the white newspaper, wrote a very sensationalized account of what had transpired and the fact that then the fact that he was in jail um, on May 31st, 1921. And so this article that was written by the Tulsa Tribune kind of whips through both sides of town. On the white side of town, there is um, an effort to go get him out of the jail and potentially lynch him. And on the black side of town, there's a sense, again, that we're not going to put up with white supremacy, white violence. We're going to protect you know, our own by any means necessary, to be honest about it. And so that night of May 31st at the courthouse, there was a large group of thousands of white people outside. Uh, some of them were demanding that Dick Rowan be taken from the from the jail. And as they're out there, this uh, group of about 75 black men armed, some of them former World War One soldiers, approached the white crowd. Um, a black guy and a white guy arguing over a gun. A gunshot goes off. All hell breaks loose is kind of the famous quote from somebody who was there. And there was really just chaos in the streets in downtown Tulsa that night, um, armed, armed blacks and whites sort of skirmishing in the streets, um, several civilian deaths. And at the same time that's going on, white people were also really attempt, planning for something bigger. So they were breaking into hardware stores to get um, guns. They began having meetings uh, across the city to orchestrate a larger attack. And around dawn on June 1st, 1921, thousands of white people invaded invaded Greenwood and began systematically burning down the buildings. All of this really in response to not only the allegation of a rape by a black man, but even more so the idea that these black men would dare to arm themselves, come to downtown Tulsa, which is white Tulsa, and, um, you know, start shooting at white folks. That's what happened on May 31st, 1921. I think it's important for people to really get that. We pass down these stories in a lot of these racial violence episodes of that era that the instigating event was a false rape accusation. But often the instigating event is actually black people arming themselves, black people daring to retaliate against um, white encroachment. And that is the thing that really sort of activates this sort of unheard of savagery. Um, in many ways, to me, it reminds me of you know the fear of a, the fear of slave rebellions that was so prevalent um, in the antebellum days, and so I think that's really the thing that white House was trying to squash when they you know burned Greenwood to the ground, and so that's sort of a walkthrough of the steps of how it unfolded. But it's always important for me to it's always important for me to, for people to understand two things: a there was a sort of chaotic battle in downtown Tulsa on May 31st, which was separate from the burning of Greenwood on June 1st. And also the fact that the motivation from the white mob was not just this, rape, this accusation of rape, but also the idea of black people arming themselves and daring to defend themselves against white Tulsa.
0: Yeah, thank you for clarifying that and for kind of setting that that story straight because yeah, we hear these, you know, these stories of these epic violence, but as you as you said, there's multiple facets to it. It's more complex. And in the book, you also really like take us through, you know, what happened systematically, those events that that unfolded. Um and so I was as I was reading that that part of the book, I remember um, you know, I was just struck by what happened and I I was recounting the you know the story to another person and I was talking to that person particularly about the hotel that burned down like just as they had finished building it in in Greenwood and I just you know I'm recounting the story and the person asked me when I want to pass this question to you was anyone held responsible after the massacre um how did Greenwood residents move on after it
1: yeah so um no one has really been held responsible um, in the 102 years since the Tulsa race massacre, but that's not because Greenwood folks weren't trying to pursue justice. Um, you know, I really, again, going back to Lula Williams, who is one of the most interesting people for me to follow um, in the story. I was able to hear an um, audio interview by her son W.D. So W.D. was actually placed into an internment camp in Greenwood the day at the day of the race massacre. Um, when he gets out of this internment camp, you had to, you actually had to have a white person vouch for you to get out of the camp. So, like a white employee of the Dreamland Theater, his mom owns the Dreamland, but a white employee is the one who has to get him out. Um, he was able to get out though, and he had to find his mom. You know, they had this really dramatic reunion um, in downtown Tulsa a couple of days after the race massacre. And W.D. said the very first place Lula went was to the attorney's office. You know, she wanted to get what she deserved for what um, she had lost. And so for Lula and so many others, um, they attempted to get. Uh, their insurance claims um, confirmed. Lula had fi- Lula had insurance claims with fire insurance companies that would give her a payout if her building was burned down. Obviously, it was. However, the insurance companies claimed that because what had happened was a quote-unquote riot, they did not have to pay. There were riot exclusion clauses in these documents. And so Lula and many others sued the insurance companies saying that what happened wasn't a riot. You know, this was a wholesale destruction in which government officials were involved. So it was dealing with a very different ball of wax but the narrative was already being seeded um, in the white press and in these in these um, lawsuit rebuttals by the insurance companies that it had been an even-handed fight between blacks and whites. So if we rewind to what I said earlier. What happened on May thirty first downtown Tulsa? That was in some ways could be construed as a race riot. It sort of a battle going on, but the actual destruction of the Dreamland and the Greenwood buildings was not that. That was a race massacre. That happened the next day, in which police officers were actually de- police officers actually deputized members of the white mob without even knowing their names, and sent them off to cause chaos in Greenwood. Um, we have literal testimony from the police commissioner attesting to that. You know what I mean? So, ultimately, because of this discrepancy between what actually unfolded and the white narrative sort of winning out. Lula and everyone else's cases were thrown out. Um, Lula and others also sued the city of Tulsa, claiming that they had had direct responsibility for what happened. Those cases were all summarily dismissed in 1937. And so in that, in that era, uh, when the survivors were just, just trying to get back on their feet, they got nothing from the city. And even in some cases, um, the business class of Tulsa conspired against them. So it was really hard to get loans to rebuild. If they did get them, they'd be at exorbitantly high, exorbitantly high interest rates. And more nefarious than that, even a lot of the real estate men in white Tulsa basically orchestrated a scheme to try to take over the Greenwood land. Um, Greenwood, like many black neighborhoods, was near downtown Tulsa, and it had sort of been deemed as sort of valueless until it wasn't. You know, so when white Tulsa decided they really wanted it, um, they basically tried to make it. They tried to pass a city council ordinance actually to make it really difficult to rebuild. Um, luckily, the, the Greenwood attorneys were able to rebut that effort. And Greenland landowners refused to sell their land, so they were able to hold on to what they had. But it was a really difficult battle. And I'm sure, I kind of get into this in the book a little bit, but I think all those logistical challenges of trying to rebuild your life made it very difficult for Greenland folks to address the psychological challenges of having your entire life upended. And so in the book, I explore a little bit of those psychological traumas that linger for Lula and others based on what had happened, and so in many ways still linger in Tulsa today, 102 years later
0: yeah thank you for that um uh yeah that was uh it was like devastating to read that in the book and then just to to read that there was very there was no you know restitution or anything like that and people just had to basically pick up their lives and continue on as if as if nothing happened but obviously something huge happened um happen to them, and so um, so one thing in the book is that you know you chronicle the Greenwood community across many years, and as you said, you have these key figures who recur throughout the book, um, such as the Goodwin family and um, other individuals. Um, I liked how you mentioned Mabel Little. I think they had like a Mabel Little Day um, in in Greenwood, celebrating her. And so you see these figures kind of recur throughout the book, and I, I liked how in the beginning of the chapters you also you always locate like a particular individual in the midst of the events going on. So it's not like these abstract events happening. You, you tell us about how such and such person, you know, was, it was, was navigating these particular, you know, circumstances. And so it really gives the book this community feel. And so how did you decide to focus on the Goodwin family and the other kind of specific individuals that recur throughout the book?
1: Yeah, just a quick sidebar. I did try to make every chapter open with kind of a compelling scene. And one of those scenes was about one of the Goodwins, Ed Goodwin. He was a pilot. And so I have a chapter that opens with him flying his plane above Tulsa. And I had to do a lot of research about how 1940s planes worked to explain the mechanics of getting how he would maneuver around with an airplane in the 1940s. Um, so that was one of those things where you had to do like weeks and weeks of research for what's like a one page or half a page scene in the book. Um, so he's, that is jogging my memory about all that work. But, um, you know, the good ones, as we've said, are, they're kind of the anchor of the story. You kind of see them through every generation from when J.H. and his wife Carly came from Mississippi to when Ed, who was a high school senior actually during the social rights massacre, saw his whole world destroyed right before attending college. Um, on into Ed's children um, advocating for justice in Greenwood during the urban renewal era. Um, Ed's son Jim was a attorney in Greenwood and really was instrumental in helping to sort of prevent the worst possible outcomes from urban renewal. Um, and today, um, Ed's granddaughter Regina is a state legislator and uh, she represents the Greenwood district she advocates for reparations and the removal of a highway that's been slicing through the neighborhood about 50 years ago. And so the reason I really chose to focus on them was because they had this through line of fighting for justice across so many different dimensions um, in the neighborhood. And also critically, because they're kind of like the last family standing on Greenwood Avenue itself. You know, Um, when the book opens, we start with probably about five or six families and individuals that I'm sort of highlighting in a lot of detail and sort of what they experienced during that ambitious era of early Greenwood. And through various reasons, each of them sort of fall off. Um, Some people were banished from Tulsa after the race massacre. Uh, Lula suffered a steep mental decline with um, traits similar to PTSD um, and died only a few years after the race massacre. Um, Many families were wiped out during urban renewal, had their homes or businesses taken then. Uh, but the good ones actually still own a black newspaper on Greenwood Avenue um, called the Oklahoma Eagle. And so just the fact that they could be there that entire time, I thought that was worthy of study, of honor, of really sort of putting putting a closer magnifying glass on. We don't get that many stories of black continuity um, as a people. You know what I mean? Um, I remember I was interviewing one guy here, uh, Greg Robinson, a former mayoral candidate. And he had this really compelling quote to me talking about how if you go to South Tulsa, you just like go in some restaurants and you'll see like open since 1930, open for 70 years, 80 years. Like there's very, very few black institutions that can claim that. And the book kind of highlights all the reasons that's so difficult to make happen for black people. And the fact that we at least have one example of it with the Goodwins and the Eagle, I really thought that was worthy of placing at the center of this story.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, the book does chronicle over the years, all of these different obstacles that black businesses have to navigate, as you said, the urban renewal and the, you know, highways that disconnect communities, um, make it difficult to then have that kind of longevity that you see in these other places. Um, and so I wanted to ask too, after the massacre, you know, there's this considerable silence. And you, you do talk about this in the book too, with different, um, you know, descendants. And I it, it made me recall how in college in, in 2000, um, I went to college at the University of Virginia. And I remember a professor coming and giving us a lecture about Tulsa, about the Greenwood neighborhood and about the, I remember her talking about, you know, calling it the Black Wall Street and also talking about the, you know, the race massacre. And, and I remember that happening because I also remember having never heard of it prior to that lecture. And so, and then I didn't really hear that much of it, you know, after that either. Um, after 2000 until until recently in the last couple of years, um, and you also talk about this too with the descendants of of massacres from the the victims. And so I wondered why there was so little um, either visibility or or you know, you know, for this critical event in Black history and national history.
1: Yeah, I think there's kind of a local answer to that, and then there's something bigger about America. So. On the local level, um, I was kind of surprised initially to find out how closely it was actually covered right afterwards. So the Tulsa World and Tulsa Tribune really covered what was going on in a lot of detail for about a year afterwards. Um, so we at least initially had a lot of interest in sort of figuring out, like, what's going to happen to this land? Um, how are these people being treated afterwards? There was definitely some um, local interest in that, in that story for a while, but... Um, probably about a year or so after the coverage of it just like falls off a cliff in terms of local um, media coverage of what, what unfolded. And what I found interesting too, is that in 1925, um, the Negro business league came to Tulsa um, for the first time ever. And even the Oklahoma Eagle, the black newspaper didn't really talk about the race massacre that much. And so there was sort of this dynamic on both sides of town that we, it was time to like move past this event. Um, I think for white people obviously there was an incentive there because they had just ignored all these legal claims there were little murderers among them and so they have a high incentive to not talk about what happened and then for black people there was really um, a fear you know both a fear that they could face retribution for talking about it but I think also a fear that passing that on to their children would plant a burden on them that they didn't they didn't want them to have or didn't deserve and I think that, especially in the jim crow era when black people were pursuing civil rights so ardently and started seeing a lot of victories in the 40s 50s and 60s it might have felt like we can leave this in the past you know we're not going to have to face this again we are moving forward in a productive way and so i think in some ways the reason it's coming to the fore these days is because we see that oh we're not going to move on a linear path forward we see that, oh, the dynamics that were at play before 1921 are kind of at play again in a lot of ways. And so that history becomes a lot more urgent and essential to understand than it might have seemed when, you know, we're, 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 we're facing or we're hoping to achieve a level of, like, racial reconciliation and progress that had never before been seen. So I think on the local level, that's kind of what's going on. And I think on the national level, like, Tulsa, 1921, kind of like disrupts a lot of American narratives. Like what's going on in 1921 is like flappers and like Great Gatsby and all that. That's like what we hear about in school. And so hearing about this black neighbor getting burned to the ground doesn't quite fit with that American, again, that American sense of progress. And so I think it's so disruptive to our understanding of our country as a place that only gets better over time, that it becomes hard to kind of slot it in anywhere. And so I think that's kind of why on the broader scale, it hasn't really been um, ever, it's never gotten a permanent fixture in American history. And I'd be curious whether it does now. Obviously, there was a lot of interest when the Washington TV show came on, and um, both Trump and Biden both visited Tulsa for different reasons last couple of years. But, you know, the cameras have left. Um, A lawsuit was actually just dismissed, a new reparation lawsuit was just dismissed last week by Oklahoma judge. And so I'll be interested to see whether or not we can really make this event something that Americans are just familiar with, the way they're familiar with the Spanish-American War, for example. You know what I mean? Um, I think that Tulsa Race Massacre sort of deserves to have that spot on the timeline of what we all understand about who we are as a country.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... um... I, I have heard more people talking about it as of, as of late, I was at a dinner party and this was maybe a year and a half ago. And the, the people, you know, they were like, Oh, I'd never heard of this before. And they started talking about the, the race massacre. And I should, I should say they were also white, but I, I know they're also probably black people who also have, hadn't heard of it either. Um, so I think that, I think that way more people have become much more aware of it. Um, you just touched on, um, you said the lawsuit that was thrown out, and it kind of touches on my, my next question because um, the last third of the book takes us to much more recent events. And you take us to these like struggles over the neighborhood, um, reparations, and like how should the massacre be commemorated. And this is all happening against the backdrop of like these uh, George Floyd protests, Black Lives Matter protests. And then Tulsa has its own local uh, victim of black police violence at the time, Terrence Crutcher. And so several people in the book are mentioning like reparations and losses and they're like naming figures, like they're putting dollar amounts to it. Like they would say like 1.2 million would be owed to Lula Williams for the Dreamland theater. Um, and $2 million would be owed for the hotel that was burned down. Um, and so I wondered if you, if you could say any more about, you know, about this question of reparations and restitution and, and where things stand with that, um, now.
1: Um, Yeah, it's definitely been a long struggle in Greenwood, to be honest. I think one thing that makes Greenwood's situation unique is actually um, the amount of documentation. So during my research, I got from the Tulsa County Courthouse uh, 5,000 pages of lawsuit documents filed by Greenwood property owners. So you can literally see in the lawsuit every single item that Lula owned and its value from the Dreamland Theater. I actually remember I actually got to share that with one of Lula's great grandchildren. He got really emotional about it. Like he had obviously knew the story of Lula from beginning to end, but he had never actually seen the document that really illustrated what she had lost and how she had lost it, you know, in the legal system. And so I think people here are very, very cognizant of what they're owed. And because of that, they're not going to like let this issue go. I think there's a dynamic in Tulsa where sometimes the powers that be think they can kind of like outlast uh, the, resent- the, the frustration over this. You know, like we literally have three living survivors who are all one, over 100 years old. And there are several instances in this case. Um the judges announced they were gonna present a ruling at a certain date and then didn't, you know, so it's just kind of this sense of like, oh, like what's taking so long? Are you hoping something happens, you know what I mean? And I think that isn't gonna work yeah. because more and more people, like you said, are becoming aware of this and the documentation will always be there. Like we're always gonna have Lula Williams lawsuit that says, lays out what happened, what she's owed. Like you can't you can't outrun that kind of injustice. And so what I see happening in the future is, you know, this lawsuit actually is going to be appealed to the state Supreme Court. Um, That's going to be a tough battle. Oklahoma is a very conservative state. Um, But I do think that continuing to pursue those avenues is important because sometimes I think the hypocrisy of what's going on activates more people. You know, Um, even if – I mean, everything we're discussing, right, Lula found that lawsuit in 1921 was really important. She lost the case – here we are 102 years later talking about her case. That's really important. So I think creating that trail of documentation of what happened is important because either you're going to get what you deserve or you're going to expose the flaws in the system. So both of those are very important tasks to do. And and in addition to the lawsuit, there's also other efforts going on now that I think are compelling that people should be keyed into. Um, The Tulsa City Council has offered kind of like a – Quasi apology for what happened during the race massacre, and that's opened up some potential avenues to do more on that level. Um, Tulsa's going to elect a new mayor next year, and so if that if a new mayor comes into town, that might change those dynamics because lots of local, lots of cities right now are actually pursuing reparations on a local level. So under under different leadership, Tulsa might go down that route. And I think the thing that kind of has the most traction at the moment actually is this effort by Regina Goodwin to potentially remove the Crosstown Expressway from Greenwood. Um, In 1967, uh, several acres of land were destroyed in Greenwood to make way for the interstate. And um, it really has like, it really cleaved the neighborhood and kind of made it impossible to rebuild Greenwood the way it was. However, under the Biden administration, the DOT department of transportation has allocated about a billion dollars to actually taking down highways from urban neighborhoods that were destructive historically. And Greenwood actually got a grant to like study potentially doing it there. So there's like federal interest, lots of local interest. Um, The state, the Department of Transportation who actually owns the property doesn't seem that excited about the idea, so that's a big impediment. But I think with both local and federal interest in the project, it is, I mean, they are doing a study right now. It's going to move forward in some capacity. So, you know, I think whatever plays out with the lawsuit, there are going to be other avenues that this is pursued, and that pursuit is not going to stop uh, anytime soon.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved what you just said about um, creating this trail of paperwork and either getting what you're owed or exposing the 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 flaws in the system. That was that was very poetic. Um and I, I thought that you know, because of all the all of the research that you did, um it, it, was, it was really interesting in reading the book and then kind of reading like the footnotes and things like that um, to see all of the documentation that you were able to unearth and, and that you marshaled to then tell this story. Um, and so you have this epic history of the Greenwood community. And um, one of the sources that you do use also is the Eagle newspaper, um, which is a black newspaper owned and run by the Goodwin family, which you just talked about. Um, and the newspaper, I thought, really, it kind of spoke to the power of journalism in chronicling everyday life and of, and of the importance of, of black newspapers. Um, but you also use memoirs, oral histories, um, other other sources. And I wondered if you, if you could say anything, you've, you've kind of told us a couple things about researching, but I wondered if you could say any more about researching the story, um, any challenges or surprises that you encountered along the way?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a daunting task for sure. Um... Because the story kind of starts in 1914 when the good ones come to Tulsa. But in some ways, it kind of starts in Reconstruction. I really kind of reached back into that era, too. So it's a lot to marshal. And it was really important to me to gather a lot of black perspectives. Um, often history is told from an un- unstated white perspective. You know, it doesn't say it's white, but it is. When you actually look, go back and look at the documents and the sources of what we're learning, and so I wanted to say, okay, well, what if we told a history that was sort of an unstated black perspective? Because the, nece- the book isn't necessarily like, um, I mean, to your point, it's very academic in some ways and journalistic, but it's sort of like, what if we marshaled all the black people's point of view about all of these things unfolded? What would that tell us about America? And that's kind of really what my aim was, I think, in choosing the kind of sources that I did. And for me, at least, it was so essential to have that day-to-day life rhythm of the neighborhood. Um, I think sometimes in black histories and academic histories, there can be a fixation on the pivotal traumatic events or bad events because that's kind of what people came for, you know? And so the point sort of becomes like, oh, how are we gonna analyze this negative event or this trauma or whatever? But A, I don't really like reducing black people to their trauma. And also, B, those seismic negative events can only really be understood if you get what the people lost. You know what I mean. If you get what Greenwood was like day to day when people were going out, hanging out at the Big Ten Ballroom, or trading bonded liquor at the bars on the table, or just getting at what the vibe was. You know what I mean. And so I really spent a lot of time using sources like the Eagle, oral histories, and also talking to folks. You know, I was able to just interview several people in their seventies and eighties about what Greenwood was actually like in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And I think that brought the world to to life in a way that was really um, dynamic, I hope, um, for the reader. Um, and then in terms of surprises, this is something I think is really – I mean, it stuck with me, so I, I want to talk about it a little bit. But So the Race Massacre chapters were by far the hardest chapters to write of the book, both in terms of the research, because there's so many competing perspectives on what happened, and also because um, – So much is still kind of unknown. Like, for example, no one quite knows what happened to Dick Rowan and Sarah Page, the two people who were on the elevator that sparked the whole thing in some sense. Um, But I was able to, one of the most valuable sources I found was actually a Red Cross report um, that was filed, created a few months later. So the Red Cross is one of the few white institutions that's actually very helpful to Greenwood. Um, This man named Maurice Willis, who was a Red Cross director, came to town, and he was actually very, he was very focused on providing humanitarian aid, but also to sort of stopping this white real estate encroachment on the neighborhood. So he was actually called an angel of mercy by some of the folks in Greenwood. And so his report really documented all the, all the steps of what happened afterwards, and also had a lot of statistics about what it unfolded. So the number of houses destroyed, uh, 1,256. He had um, you a know, number of meals distributed, number of tents built. And they also had information about fatalities, actually, in this, in this document. And so they, they showed that, you know, so many people had been killed, so many people had been injured. But the number that really jumped out at me was um, eight stillborn babies uh, after the massacre. And so when I read that, I was actually in a library uh, here in Tulsa, in Greenwood, actually, just going through research. As you know, research can be very tedious. So I'm sure it was a very tedious day. And I saw this number, eight stillborn babies, and it really just kind of stopped me, stopped me cold in a lot of ways. Like really understanding that, you know, what I write in the book is that Greenwood lost its past, Greenwood lost its future. Like we don't know what Greenwood would have been. We don't know what those babies' lives would have been if not for this horrific attack. And so it was important for me to always sort of, the book goes in a lot. The book has a very wide scope, but as you point out, the center of it is this massacre, this horrific event that reshaped the concerts of this neighborhood And really should reshape the contours of this country because it was so horrific. And I think right now, in some ways, it's having a reverberating effect or it is reshaping the way we see America. Um, So, again, we're not going to escape the shadow of this event unless we face face it directly and atone for it as a country, and especially as uh, governmental entities should do. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to ask too. You kind of touched on this in your in your previous answer, but in in talking about the you know the massacre, we talked about this national silence around it. Um, but there were also people who were who were trying to document it. And so you just mentioned the Red Cross. Um, but I also wanted to ask too. Um, in reading your book too, I noticed you know there are all of these footnotes about you know commissions and interviews um, and other authors who wrote about the the massacre. Um, I was also, you know, uh, I don't want to say happy, but it, I, I, it was a spark of recognition when I saw my former um, colleague Scott Ellsworth. I was happy to see his name um, there in the book as a young oral historian doing these narratives from survivors in, in the 1970s. Um, and so I wondered um, how were individuals trying to document or or work through the the atrocity too?
1: Yeah, I mean everything starts with a person, right? All, all journalism is or history is one person telling another person a story. That's the whole thing. So I don't personally don't like it when authors or journalists sort of try to pretend like they did a magic trick, you know, where they kind of like corral all this information and then they synthesize it and then they kind of give it back to you, but they don't tell you how they did it. And it's sort of like, I think it creates this sort of um, sense of the genius of the writer in some sense. That's kind of that's kind of the goal of it, I think. But I want to do something different that said, hey, you're going to be able to see sentence by sentence how this was put together. Like, this whole thing is me, like you said, kind of corralling this information to kind of interpret it in my own way. But I think it's important for people to understand both that history is assembled, you know? Like the history we get in the textbooks is the same way. we just it's not presented to you that way. And also that I could not write a book of this scope and scale without so many other people's contributions all the way back to the beginning of the story. So I think a lot about actually um, Mary Jones Parish. Mary Jones Parish was another um, race massacre survivor. She was a typing educator in Greenwood in 1921. Um, she had a office, an office and apartment right on Greenwood Avenue. She could literally see the mob coming um, setting up a machine gun on the night of May 31st. And you know heroically she decided to stay and observe what was going on and write it down. And she also interviewed several other race massacre survivors in the weeks afterwards. She published this book, Events of the Tulsa Disaster, in 1923. I think there were literally only dozens of copies printed at the time. It has a big, bright red cover. It's a very striking book. And Mary Jones Paris, she kind of fades out of history. Nobody quite knows what happened to her for several decades. Her book fades out of history. But she wrote it down. Very important that she did that because fast forward to the 1970s and 80s, people like, uh, Scott Ellsworth were able to use that source to help them flesh out their stories. I was able to use that book to flesh out the stories of not only her, but people like the Goodwins. Um, and really kind of get that narrative of what happened during the race massacre itself. For example, in Mary Jones Paris, there's a lot of people um, stating that they saw airplanes being used to attack Greenwood, and that's been a big point of contention and sort of the academic analysis of what happened. And so that her, her book is a really big sort of like argument in favor of the idea that these airplanes were used in a destructive way. And so for her, I think it was important for me to not only use her as a footnote, but to make her a figure in the story. She was part of that world, you know what I mean? And so I really wanted to center her in the world. And even at the end of the book, um, I gave her a descendant's voice. I interviewed her descendants. And they talked a little bit about their first time visiting Tulsa, where Mary Jones had lived, and sort of what their perspective was on what this place was, you know what I mean? And so for me, it was really important to um, not only... Be transparent about how I put the story together, but also make sure that those earlier voices, like Mary Jones Parish, um, like Scott, some of these people who had gathered the narrative, that the mechanics of how they did it is also part of why we have the story now. So I wanted to be able to highlight that and um, celebrate that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the book is very is very rigorous, and um, you know, and you you really did a, an excellent job, you know writing it, telling that story, and um an excellent job like documenting it for the reader as well. Um, because I think it's important, as you just said, you had showed a document to Lula Williams descendant. It's it's like, you know, everyone, you know, should be able to access this information if it's if it's publicly available. And so, you know, you you provide us with that map to be able to do that, to go to those locations and see those documents should people want to do that. Um, You know, and so really you should be commended for that. And it, it really is an excellent, um, excellent book. Um, and so uh, so it's common for. Oh, so I wanted to ask you a question about your newsletter, Run It Back, um, because you're uh, you, you were kind of sharing the book and the writing process and the development of the book through your newsletter. And I think I started following the newsletter maybe a year and a half ago. And I really enjoyed it because it came to my you know email inbox probably once a month. And I got to read these different stories that you would recount about what you were finding in the archives. And um, this is obviously prior to the book coming out. And so I wondered um, how, how you came up with the idea for the newsletter. And you know what did you hope to accomplish with it, and and what were the outcomes with it? I thought I thought this was an ingenious way to to chronicle like writing this book.
1: Well, thank you for being a running backhead. I appreciate that. Um, actually, at my I want I did an event for the book tour in Brooklyn at a bookstore there, and there was a guy who read It back at the event, and so that was very exciting for me. Um, so I quit my job. I was like a regular journal I had a staff writer job as a journalist before the book so I quit my so I was very used to like I used to just I used to pump out content let's put it that way right I used to be a blogger um it's mine my, my dark backstory um and so I kind of have that reflex or muscle I guess you would say and so when I quit my job I had more free time I realized that I needed to get. I didn't want to just disappear from the internet, to be honest with you, for several years and then pop back up four years later. I just didn't think that was going to work in today's very fast-moving, attention-deprived uh, digital economy. And so, I initially, actually, I was trying to tweet my uh, thoughts, and that went really poorly. <laughs> like, I would tweet some statement about racist white Tulsa, and some people would be like, how dare you be racist against white Tulsa? And some somebody would be like... How are you saying that? They're, that's not racist. You're not saying how racist they were, really. You're sugarcoating it. And nobody really got what I was trying to say. So I really needed, like, more space to be able to actually, like, explain my thoughts about what I was finding. And also more space to, like, figure it out for myself. You know what I mean? I think on Twitter, for example, if you don't have, like, an airtight, fully defendable opinion, you're going to get roasted. <laughs> you know? And so I didn't want to say, like, on Twitter they say never be the main character. <laughs> so I didn't want to be the main character on Twitter. So I, re- I retreated to my blog where I could have a little bit more space and more of a controlled audience. And it was, that was sort of the impetus of it, honestly, because Twitter was sucked. But when I got into it, um, I realized that being able to, A, it gave me motivation to turn the research into narrative, right? The, I, I knew the impact of this book was going to be turn this amount of research into narrative. And so doing it as I went, I think, kind of helped me be in that mindset, like, what is it I'm finding that could actually be conveyed to a general audience that's of interest, and so it really helped me, I think, with doing that. And then also, it helped me to pull out larger themes. You know, like I wrote, for example, actually, I, I did a lot of research about um, indigenous history in Oklahoma. Um, there's more of it in my newsletter that's in the book. I, I, there's a lot of it in my newsletter about it, and only a little bit in the book. But I needed to get that history and even the way that black and indigenous people interacted. I needed to understand that to even begin to attempt to talk about Oklahoma. I don't think you can do it if you don't get it. You know what I mean? And so the newsletter helped me kind of walk through the mechanics of how it worked and what I thought about it. And so I think by the time I got to the book, I was able to pull out these larger themes about sort of like American progress, quote unquote, and what that means and how it was sort of like hoist, forced it upon Oklahoma and Oklahomans, Black and Indigenous, whether they wanted it or not. Because I had done the research in the, in the newsletter, I think I was able to sort of capture it maybe more poetically or more efficiently in the book. I kind of already knew a backstory of it that let me speak it with confidence. You know, I think I remember actually when I was, I used to be a writer at Time Magazine um, when I first started after college doing journalism. I remember one day my editor was like, oh, you sound really confident in this piece. I never really thought about that as a quality of writing, confidence, but actually it's really important. You have to be able to write confidently about what you're saying. And that's kind of a abstract idea, but it's there on the page. Like You know when you're reading a confident writer. And I hope that my newsletter, which was, searching and curious and all that helped me become confident when we got to the actual pages of the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that, trying to find the right medium to express what it is that you want to to express, like Twitter is good for certain things and a newsletter is good for certain things. And, you know, uh, Instagram is, you know, it's like trying to figure out which medium is right, you know, for, for it. Right.
1: And now, now we have threads and spill. It's a big mess now. So oh my god, <laughs> I know.
0: I know, I'm trying to decide where to go um, as we speak. Um, So this is, uh, I think it's my last, it's my last um, content question about the book. And so, um, you know, it's common, of course, for African Americans um, to say and to understand that we're standing on the shoulders of people who came before us. Um, And so this is evident in the book, as we see people, you know, continuing to, to advance their goals and participate in these national and Black historical events. Um, and, you know, you, it, th- through the book, you know, you take us through like these different like national events and how they reverberate in Greenwood, like World War I and two, civil rights integration, um, you know, sit-ins and protests. And so I, I wondered, um, you know, what you hoped that people would, would take away from the book? What did you hope that they would that they would gain, um, you know, from reading the book uh, that you wrote?
1: people could come at this with a lot of different levels of knowledge, you know? So like I've said before, I think the Tulsa race massacre is something that every American should know about. And so you get that download from the book in a more detailed way, which is great. But bigger picture, I actually wanted to explain how what happened in Tulsa actually wasn't that unique. You know, the race massacre wasn't that unique. Actually, there were race massacres and riots throughout America in that era. a highway going through the middle of a black neighborhood not unique at all that happened in dozens or hundreds of cities in the United States. Um, Gentrification, you know, not unique. And so what I hope people get from the book is that, oh, like all these things that were unfolding in this city that's going to become famous for all this stuff also happened in my backyard. And I should be more curious about how my city came to be the way it is and what I can do about it now. You know, one reason I wanted to focus on the end of the book on One of of the reasons I wanted to focus at the end of the book on politics was that, you know, we all have a role to play in our local and state politics, you know, and so we get to follow in the book the way the Oklahoma State legislature not only is sort of in this huge conservative backlash and sort of limiting our rights in a lot of ways to protest, to learn all these things, but also I I really try to explain the the mechanics of it. You know, people should understand that if you have like a very – conservative, or one-party uh, state government, that one party gets to dictate what bills are even considered. you know, and They can they can kick bills out for totally arbitrary reasons. And so I think when people sort of get those mechanical things, too, it helps you sort of realize how important it is to be civically engaged. Um, it doesn't have to just be voting, right? In urban renewal era, as black folks were advocating for civil rights and entering white spaces, they kind of missed the boat in some ways in some of these urban planning meetings, and then weren't able to really get a grasp or a handle on what's happening to their own physical space. And so I think when you learn that lesson from the urban renewal era, it makes us all the more urgent to key into these other city planning meetings that are always going on in our communities. And so really what I want people to take from this is like what happened in Tulsa and Greenwood also happened in my backyard. What can I do to both understand that history in my own community and also to engage with what's going on right now?
0: Yeah, by focusing on the individuals in the book and really you know, taking us into that world, I think you really make this case, you know, for individual agency and the kind of, as you said, we each have a role to play and it's, and it's important. And, you know, we might feel like, Oh, we're just one single person, but you know, we, we all can do, we all can do so much. Um, And so now that the book uh, built from the fire is out into the world, um, what are you working on either now or what are you working on um, next? Like what projects are you, are you thinking about pursuing? um, Or do you have on your plate uh, at the moment?
1: Yeah, so um, in the near term I'm excited to just be able to share the book with more people. So I'm going to be going on an academic tour um, this coming school year. We'll be talking to colleges around the country about the book. So I'm very excited about that. Um, and also planning a actually community read here in Tulsa so that more people here can sort of get uh, sort of anchor points of this it's, it's a very it's a big book, it's a dense book, but it reads well. Just that's my pitch. Um, but I want people to be able to sort of absorb the racial violence in the early era, and then have a chance to like discuss that or learn more about it. Same with urban renewal. So we're doing those kind of pro. We're going to be doing the events throughout the city um, over the next year. So I'm very excited about partnering with a lot of the local colleges. And then in terms of my next project, I haven't really settled on anything, but I am very much interested in what I feel like is a big gap in sort of common common Black history, which is the period between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. I feel like Black people just kind of disappear from. General American history in that era until like Rosa Parks is on the bus, and you know a lot of my book is actually about that era, that window, that gap. And so I think there are other stories that fill in that gap that I like to explore. Exactly what it will be yet, I don't know. But this is my first book, and I hope to write many more.
0: I'm sure you will write many more. And congratulations also on the uh, the tour of. Uh, well, you've already been on tour for the book, so congratulations for that. But also, congratulations for the upcoming tour of college campuses. As someone who works on a college campus, I can attest to uh, to, to the necessity of having uh, you come and talk about this book to our students, because you know, again, this is really important knowledge, and it's this is critical information for people to to know and understand. Um, So I want to thank you for sharing this with us. Um, I've been talking to Victor Lukerson, who is the author of the book Built from the Fire, the epic story of Tulsa's Greenwood District, America's Black Wall Street, published by Random House. Thank you so much for sharing it with us on the podcast. And thank you for writing the book.
1: Thank you so much, Reagan. It was great to be here.